Well, there's a podcast at nwnewsradio.com, or you catch it here on radio at AM 1000, FM 97.7, also at 101.5 HD Channel 2. Welcome, as we give you a chance to catch up to the top stories of the past week. A report on crime in Seattle seems to raise more questions than answers. And what a major purchase order for the Boeing Airplane Company. The King County Executive spends some time with the U.S. Attorney General. These are just a fraction of the stories you're about to hear, as collected by our reporters, our editors, our news anchors, producers, and even some from our partner, Como TV News. Let's get to our first story. And it comes from our own Ryan Harris. Violent crime and property crime are both up in 2022 compared to 2021 in the state's largest city. 4% is the number in Seattle for increases in both violent and property crimes, with shootings up significantly and murders up 24% year over year, but starting to fall in the latter half of 2022. A trend police chief Adrian Diaz says appears to be continuing. Diaz says property crimes are coming in under the five-year average, which he also says shows police are doing good work, but where Diaz expressed concern that many of those crimes are not reported. The more we can get people to report that crime, it gives us much more accurate reflection about what crime trends we need to actually be addressing and what people are experiencing. Council member Sarah Nelson says the 4% increase in property crime can can't be accurate because of the number of small business victims, many of whom she says don't report the crimes to keep their insurance costs down or because they can't get officers there quickly enough to take reports. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. A new shift change will keep more Seattle police officers where they need to be. Como Force, Denise Whitaker. The police union president and police chief both say officers need more rest, many of them now working extra days to cover shifts for a department that's seriously short-staffed. Because I am concerned about just how much overtime uh, that uh, you know our officers are, are working um, to make sure that the city is safe. We barely have enough people. And, you know, when you keep losing people. Mike Solon, president of the Seattle Police Union, tells me they've already lost 15 officers this year on top of the 400 or so lost over the past several years. That has also been part of our recruiting plan because in order to retain people, we got to make sure that we're mindful of, uh, of um, the, the things that would actually help keep people uh, still doing this job. The chief says he's had several inquiries now from officers who left but want to come back. I'm aware of uh, several people are because of the vaccine mandate decision. But we'll see if they actually get brought back. Hopefully they do because we're desperate for people and those are quality officers. Chief Diaz also says the new 10-hour shifts will provide overlap during shift changes, keeping more officers on the street during peak hours for criminals, for example, from 2 to 5 a.m. And he says they're utilizing more analytical data. And so that allows us to shift resources throughout the city. And the chief says even if an officer has to work overtime on a fifth day, they should still get two days of rest under this new schedule before having to report back for duty. In Seattle, Denise Whitaker, Como News. Seattle's Health One Crisis Response Unit should grow larger and serve more people. That's what a U.S. congressman is saying after watching the team in action himself. Not every call to 911 requires the full fire crew aid car response. Some call for the more specialized attention social workers are trained to provide. Enter Health One, Seattle's alternative 911 response unit first launched in 2019. They're dealing with people who are in distress. U.S. Representative Adam Smith, 9th 
district Democrat. People who have mental health challenges, people who have substance abuse challenges, people who are reaching the point where they, they are struggling to meet their basic needs. Smith notes in the past, cops and firefighters have had to deal with emergency needs like drug episodes and suicidal crises. And that has, has created problems because neither is specifically trained in dealing with these situations. Health One with a social worker on board is better equipped than other first responders to deal with mental health issues, fentanyl overdoses, and unmet needs due to homelessness. The challenges are nationwide. Smith hints Congress has a role to play in funding Health One type programs, but so far he can point to no specific legislation. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. As we give you a chance to catch up to the stories of the week ending February 18th, we want to make sure you have this. This past week's mass shooting at Michigan State University was the 67th to take place in our country so far this year. New research gives us some insight into why it keeps happening. Luke Barr, taking a closer look for ABC News, spoke with our own Manda Factor and Brian Calvert. What can you tell us, Luke? So what we know from the Secret Service, which released a report titled Mass Attacks in the United States from 2016 to 2020, they studied 173 mass attacks in the U.S. Uh, What we know is that 75% of them were carried out with a gun, oftentimes purchased illegally or illegally acquired uh, by the attacker. You know, there are red flags given by the attacker in most cases, whether it be concerning posts online or concerning behavior uh, that they exhibited just before the attack. And finally, we also know that the attackers uh, had personal grievances towards at least 50% of the places that they attacked. So whether it be that they knew somebody who worked at a business or uh, the business was, was personal to them, a church, a house of worship, etc., 50% of those were personal to the attacker. Luke, in so many of these incidents, the gunman ends up dead themselves. How, how were they able to compile this information? How were they able to put all of this together? So a lot of times uh, the Secret Service will go back after an attack or the FBI will go back after an attack and do what's called a behavioral analysis. And so they'll interview family members, they'll interview friends, all under the auspices of research. Of, of course, it's, if, this, if the suspect is dead, uh, there's, there's nothing to uh, prosecute at the, uh, you know, with the attacker. So, you know, they'll, they'll oftentimes go back and do research about what, you know, what was that person saying or what was that person posting or what was that person doing in the days, months, weeks prior to the attack. You mentioned most of the attackers used guns. Do they have them legally? So that's the interesting thing is that the Secret Service says that the guns were often acquired illegally. Uh, One third of the attackers, uh, they say, were prohibited by federal law from purchasing or possessing a gun, including those with prior felony or domestic violence convictions. Luke, we appreciate your time this morning. ABC News, Luke Barr joining us on the Northwest News Line. More than two dozen victim advocates gathered at the state capitol in this past week to lay out a plan for stronger laws and better domestic violence programs. Here's John Lobertini. The holes in the system can leave victims and families powerless. I don't think we could have picked a better day than Valentine's Day. House Bill 1715 would require electronic monitoring for offenders with victim notification. Representative Lauren Davis. Challenges the premise that DV victims should be sent into hiding while our system does very little to hold their abusers accountable. Representative Jesse Solomon is going after guns in House Bill 5231. Help officers remove guns at the scene of a domestic violence, serve a protection order, and an order to surrender weapons. 
Every year, money for domestic violence programs ebbs and flows. Funding for DV services has been inadequate for many years. By July 1st, the contribution from the federal government is going to drop by millions of dollars. Emily Stone is with the Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Survivors are facing increased levels of violence, fewer options. The only path forward is the stability that increased funding can support. The number is $132 million, but that money isn't in the current state budget. John Libertine, Northwest News Radio. A civil rights lawsuit against Pierce County and one of its deputies has been dismissed. A federal judge has ruled that Deputy Colby Edwards acted reasonably when he shot and killed William Langfitt IV in 2018, according to the Seattle Times. Edwards and a witness said they thought Langfitt was holding a weapon as he approached the deputy and attempted to climb into his cruiser. The judge found the deputy had met the criteria for qualified immunity, a legal principle that grants government officials and employees immunity from a civil lawsuit unless it can be shown that they knowingly violated a law or an individual's constitutional rights. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. A couple stories on the way in our next segment. Rent stabilization. And what about that Boeing purchase order? What do you hear? Let's continue with this one. Washington now one of 21 states that automatically restore voting rights for felons upon release from prison. But according to the Secretary of State, very few are taking advantage of that. A new law took effect last year that automatically allows those with felony convictions to vote the moment they exit prison, even if court fines and fees have not been paid. The bill was sponsored by Representative Tara Simmons of Bremerton, who was herself incarcerated several times prior to being elected to office in 2020. This bill is very important to thousands of people across our state who are currently disenfranchised many of whom are my personal friends who are working, giving back to their communities and supporting others. According to Crosscut, of more than 24,000 state residents with past felony convictions now eligible to vote, just 414 cast ballots in the midterms. Voting rights advocates attribute the low turnout to the newness of the law. Simmons now calling for jails and prisons to offer voter registration drives and provide information on voting to current inmates. Carleen Johnson, Northwest News Radio. It's Northwest News this week. We're covering the week of February 18. I'm Mark Christopher. Is it rent control or rent stabilization? The debate heating up as lawmakers consider several bills aimed at slowing the rising cost of rental housing. It's no secret rents are sky high, but a national survey reveals rents in Washington jumped by a staggering 63% between 2010 and 2021. Lawmakers need to enact serious solutions this legislative session. Michelle Thomas is with the Washington Low Income Housing Alliance. It is the only policy that can act with the speed necessary to stabilize renter households who are suffering from the rent gouging. Roughly a half dozen bills have been introduced, but a cap on rent increases, no more than 3 to 7 percent, has the support of landlords like Mike Parker. People are hurting, and we have to do something to stabilize that now. It's the right thing to do. We have to give renters more protection, or we're never going to work ourselves out of this homelessness problem. But Sean Flynn was quick to call this rent control. The executive director of the Rental Housing Association of Washington says, when you artificially cap rents, bad things happen to housing markets. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. Some workers who lost their jobs because of state environmental order would be declared eligible for some additional unemployment benefits. It's under a new bill in Olympia. Nearly three dozen net pen finfish farmers at Cook Aquaculture lost their jobs when Public Lands Commissioner Hillary Franz declared the practice an environmental threat and ordered leases for net pens on state.
state-owned waters would not be renewed. House Bill 1712 would declare them dislocated workers, which means in addition to the first 26 weeks of unemployment, they'd be eligible for a second 26 weeks if they're in appropriate job retraining. Cook Aquaculture's Troy Nichols. You know all too well how disruptive unemployment can be, so we just want to give these folks an opportunity to get some retraining, uh, find a new occupation, and uh, take care of their families. No one testified in opposition to this bill. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. One of the biggest business deals we heard for the week, Boeing and its European rival Airbus sharing the largest airplane order ever placed by a single airline. Who is it? And how many aircraft? Here's Corwin Hagen. Air India is ordering a total of 470 planes, an order to be split evenly between Boeing and Airbus. Airlines usually negotiate discounts for big orders, but at list prices, this one is worth about $70 billion. CNBC analyst Phil LeBeau reports Boeing's half includes mostly planes to be built in Renton. Mainly 737 MAXs, 190 of the 220 will be the MAX. 20 more are 787 Dreamliners and 10 are 777Xs. The latter is the long-awaited jumbo jet not expected to enter service for another two years. Not only is the Air India order that carrier's largest order ever, it's reportedly Boeing's third largest commercial airplane order in history. It's an order big enough to draw praise from President Biden, who said in a statement the sale would support over one million American jobs across 44 states. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Thank you, Corwin. Congressman Rick Larson, a Democrat from Snohomish County, says the U.S. should not abandoned diplomacy with China just because of the spy balloon that was shot down off the coast of the Carolinas. Jeff Bolgela of Northwest News spoke with Larson, who is also a part of the U.S.-China working group. Taking care of our own house first and making sure our economy is stronger puts us in a better position relative to any other country in the world, including China. I think the second set of things has to do with uh, ensuring that we're pursuing um, our diplomacy with our friends and allies and partners in this region and, frankly, around the world. Um, I think the U.S. is better positioned um, relative to China's influence in countries. If we're doing our job in, from a U.S. perspective on developing partners, developing friends, developing um, allies. Uh, so I, I think those are the two big th- steps that, that you know, we've taken a set of steps already. Um, we need to ensure that the U.S. remains a, uh, a, a, uh, in, a, in a position of global leadership, and we do that by developing friends, allies, and partners. Republicans and some Democrats have criticized the president and the administration for not being as tough on China through this whole incident. Would you agree with that? Um, I wouldn't uh, agree with that. I don't know what being tough on China with regards to this incident means. What I would say is that if U.S. policy is going to be um, uh, as buffeted by the wind as spy balloons are, then we're not. Then we don't have a very good policy, and we're going to end up in a worse position uh, in the future. We need to have a strategic vision of U.S. policy towards China that isn't influenced by the outrage of the week or the spy balloon of the week. Um, we need to have one that is longer term. We need to have uh, one that is tough, one that is competitive, um, and we also recognize have to recognize where there's areas of cooperation operation with the second largest economy in the world and the largest global emitter of carbon emissions. Um, If we're just going to set U.S. policy uh, based on uh, whether the president should have shot down a spy balloon over Alaska or over the Carolinas, that is not a place where uh, to start when it comes to setting policy. I'm trying to 
get members of Congress to be a, a much more strategic in their vision of U.S.-China policy. And we have an opportunity now in Congress. We established in a bipartisan vote a select committee on China um, to look at a lot of these issues. Uh, I think 85 to 95, uh, 85 to 90 percent of things uh, uh, will be discussed. Democrats and Republicans will agree on. So, uh, but again, I, I just think that if we're focused strictly on whether the president was tough enough on this one issue, that's that's not a that's not a very strategic view, nor a good foundation to build a long-term U.S. policy towards China. Congressman Rick Larson with our own Jeff Poljula of Northwest News Radio. State Department of Commerce Director Lisa Brown is resigning. She's stepping down on March 3rd after holding the post for four years. Brown expanded the Commerce Community Engagement and Outreach Team and started the Small Business Resiliency Network, which now includes 30 messenger organizations. A spokesperson for the Commerce Department told the Olympian Brown is not retiring, but she won't announce her next move until after she leaves agency service. Before her time at Commerce, Brown served as a lawmaker, representing the 3rd Legislative District in Spokane for 20 years, and also taught at Gonzaga and Eastern Washington University. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio. A former DUI defense attorney is now Whatcom County's newly elected district court judge. And because of his former position, a superior court judge says he cannot oversee more than 120 DUI-related criminal cases in the court. To explain this, Carlene Johnson. The Whatcom County Prosecuting Attorney's Office took drastic steps to stop District Court Judge Jonathan Rands from hearing DUI-related criminal cases. They did not believe that the judge, a former DUI defense attorney, could fairly handle them. So, according to the Bellingham Herald, those prosecutors filed a restraining order temporarily barring Rands from hearing the cases and then asked a higher court to order the judge to remove himself permanently from handling those cases. The judge refused. Rands argued the prosecutor's office was attempting to intimidate him in his first few weeks as judge. But on Monday, a Whatcom County Superior Court disagreed, ruling that Rands was required to remove himself from hearing the DUI cases. And the court said he acted unlawfully by not doing so. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. In the minutes ahead, a toxic drug never intended for human consumption and gender ID. We'll get to those stories. An ordinance in Auburn aims to get more addicts into treatment by lengthening jail stays to at least 30 days. This ordinance took effect in October and city officials said that they didn't have any results at this point that they could share with us, but they say it is a tool that can help addicts and make the community safer. Ongoing complaints about open drug use and street disorder at city parks and the downtown district convinced city leaders in Auburn a tougher approach was needed. Kent Hay, who oversees the homeless outreach for the city, says fentanyl magnified the crisis. A lot of things that happened in the downtown area and some of these areas with the stealing and the, um, the assaults. In response, the city expanded its soda zones, or stay out of drug areas, and also required that repeat offenders be held in jail at least 30 days to make sure drug offenders could access treatment services. Hay says he routinely meets people living on the streets who want that help but aren't able to follow through because the addiction is so strong. The city has other programs, including a resource center to connect people to housing and a clinic where medications like Suboxone can be prescribed to counter the crushing grip of fentanyl. 
Hay says it works for some, but others need more intervention. Jail should never be taken off the table. I think some people, it saves people's lives sometimes when they're unable to save their own lives. How do you respond to people who say you can't force people into treatment who don't choose it? We've run out of time. They've run out of time. We can't wait this out. People are dying while we're waiting for them to make decisions to, to go into treatment. You know, when they adopted this law, the city council asked that an equity review be done on the people that are arrested just to make sure that uh, people of color or other minorities aren't disproportionately impacted. Joe Moreno reporting from our news partner, Como 4. I'm Mark Christopher, and this is Northwest News This Week for the week ending February 18th. As we continue now, Alaska Airlines went before a Senate committee in Olympia this past week over a state law that requires meal and rest breaks for flight attendants. At issue, can an airline be penalized because flight attendants can't take breaks while helping fly a passenger jet? It's simply an untenable situation. It's an argument that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Megan Olette is with Alaska Airlines. Directly conflicts with the FAA's regulations of the airlines, which require cabin crew to remain on duty at all times during flight. Alaska and other airlines argue this would force them to hire more staff, adding to the cost of flying. But Senate Bill 5725 would exclude cabin crews from state law. Poppy Gamblin is with United Airlines. This truly represents a collaboration with our flight attendants and the carriers. Pricey lawsuits followed the high court's refusal to hear the case last summer, but agreements have been reached with the flight attendants union. Megan Olette. These complex pay systems were negotiated by our union, which has expertise involving flight attendant compensation. Before it becomes law, this bill is going to need the approval of the legislature and the governor. John Libertini, Northwest News Radio. The Idaho State House has passed a bill that would ban doctors from providing providing puberty blockers and other gender-affirming care to minors. Details on this from our own Carlene Johnson. Healthcare providers would be sent to prison for helping someone under the age of 18 struggling with gender dysphoria in the process of changing their gender. This type of care includes puberty blockers, hormones, and sex reassignment surgery. KTVB in Idaho reports Representative Lori McCann was one of the only Republicans to voice concern over the bill, though she did ultimately vote in favor of it after sharing her family experience. My first reaction is, oh, you've got to be kidding me. This can't be happening. How does one get married and then want to become a man and you're a female? The American Medical Association has voiced their concerns over similar legislation barring transgender care, arguing that trans children, like all children, have the best chance to thrive when they are supported and can obtain the health care they need. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. One in three teenage girls say they've seriously considered taking their own lives. That's according to a new CDC report. Dr. Vivek Murthy joined King County Executive Dow Constantine for a discussion at the National Association of Counties meeting, where they talked about the unprecedented mental health crisis facing young Americans. Murthy says part of their stress comes from bullying, which we used to be able to escape at home, but which follows them now and is exacerbated by social media. If I did something dumb in seventh grade, 20 kids knew about it, they made fun of me, and then three days later nobody remembered. Now people take video of the embarrassing things that you do. They post them online. Thousands of people may be commenting on them. It makes kids even more self-conscious than they already are at developmental ages. Murthy says out of 
24-hour news cycle filled with talk of violent communities and a climate crisis, and he says it's a recipe for kids' stress. The Surgeon General says parents are pleading because they need help for their kids, but also because they're trying to care for them while facing their own stress. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Health officials in nearly every state, including Washington, tracking a growing number of overdose deaths linked to a toxic drug never intended for human consumption. Xylazine is a tranquilizer for large animals like horses and elephants. It started showing up routinely, though, in the drug supply in 2019, with dealers cutting it in with fentanyl and other opioids. Is here but it's much less common than what we're seeing in other parts of the country, at least as of now. Caleb Banta-Green is the director of the University of Washington Center for Community-Engaged Drug Education, Epidemiology, and Research. He says Trank, as it's called on the street, is far more prevalent on the East Coast and in the South, where up to 70% of overdose deaths show xylazine in the user's body. What we're seeing in overdose deaths is it's just been in a small handful of overdose deaths involving fentanyl, less than 1%. We have seen it a bit more often in in drug treatment programs where you're seeing less than 10%, but a little bit larger proportion of folks who may be testing positive for xylazine. According to the Pew publication Stateline, not all coroners and medical examiners are even testing for xylazine, in part because the DEA has not yet listed it as a drug of abuse. So its prevalence is likely a drastic underestimation. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Smoking is a tough habit to kick for so many. Now researchers at Washington State University say they've discovered how CBD can be a big help. CBD, as you may know, is a non-psychoactive component of cannabis. For years now, people have used it to reduce inflammation or help with body aches and pains. Researchers at Washington State University say they have found another use for CBD to help people quit smoking. Turns out, as Dr. Philip Lazarus tells me, they discovered CBD can help slow a key enzyme that metabolizes nicotine. Smokers, why do they light up another cigarette, you know, a half hour after the one that they just had? Sometimes they even light it up right after. It's chain smokers, right? The reason is because nicotine gets metabolized fairly quickly in the body. Lazarus says by keeping nicotine in the body longer, it will help keep smokers from reaching for another cigarette, which could hopefully lead to quitting. So far, the work has been done in the lab, but researchers are working toward eventually doing clinical studies with smokers. Marina Rockinger, Northwest News Radio. In a segment ahead, the city of Tacoma has an idea for residents of how to provide more feed from old food. And then a reminder that February is Heart Health Month, a perfect time to learn a life-saving skill. Bill Swartz meeting up with some local cardiac arrest survivors and the people who know CPR. Sherry Badger was working at King County Emergency Services when she blacked out. The last thing I recall was uh, the paramedic who was there as he was wheeling me out to the ambulance. Uh, he looked around at my coworkers and said, you saved a life today. One of Sherry's quick-thinking co-workers, Jason Chiron. So I spent eight years as an EMT working on an ambulance and was standing next to somebody who had just finished EMT school. So uh, we hit the door to run, grabbed the AED, got in there, did kind of look like she was having a seizure, um, but put the AED on just to make sure. And it started shouting, clear the patient, deliver shock now. 
Knowing how to administer CPR and King County Medic One paramedics are part of a tier system giving cardiac arrest patients in King County a better chance of survival. Jennifer DeBona's 13-year-old son Miles alive today because a dispatcher provided CPR guidance over the phone. Now, I didn't know this until my son had suffered cardiac arrest. That there's no more mouth-to-mouth. We're not doing that anymore. Um, and when I learned about the compressions and even in Seattle doing the deep compressions and just the different ways that um, we're able to keep people alive. During the COVID pandemic, CPR training declined, but interest is picking up, possibly because of Buffalo Bills football player, Demar Hamlin. Saving the life of a loved one, colleague or total stranger, takes guts, says Renton Regional Fire Chief Chuck DeSmith. There's a lot of skills to learn in CPR, but the first one is to empower somebody to take that step forward to get involved. CPR has gone through a lot of changes throughout the years, but we have simplified it so that anybody can do it and do it well. Heart Health Month, the perfect time to learn CPR. And in King County, download the Pulse Point app on your phone. I'm Bill Swartz, Northwest News Radio. Northwest News this week, every week at this time, also as a podcast at nwnewsradio.com. It's a way for you to catch up to the stories of the past week, perhaps you missed or only got a headline. We're covering the stories for the week of February 18th. As we continue here for the week, contractors at Hanford will get more time to destroy chemicals that have been linked to worker illnesses. This is part of a 2015 lawsuit against Washington River Protection Solutions, the federal contractor in charge of the numerous tank farms at the Hanford site. Now, the hundreds of underground tanks contain radioactive waste left over from decades of nuclear weapons production during the Cold War. But workers charged with cleaning up those tanks have often been sickened due to various chemicals emanating from them in the form of vapors. The Tri-City Herald reports workers are now granting more time to develop the technology to safely dispose of those chemicals in exchange for more transparency. In the past, incidents of vapor exposure and sickened workers have gone underreported. Now each of those incidents will be posted online. Jeff Pogela, Northwest News Radio. Climate change might have an actual benefit. Is it possible global warming could actually make temperatures less deadly? Harry Stevens has taken a closer look at this for the Washington Post. He joins us now on the Northwest News Line. Now, Harry, this might seem a little bit counterintuitive to some people, but how can a warming planet actually be less deadly for people? Hey, thanks for having me on. And you're right, it does seem counterintuitive at first because... There has been a lot of attention in recent years paid to the increased mortality from heat waves. And in fact, uh, the best available science does show us that over the last uh, 20 years, you know, you have uh, 400,000 more people dying per year in heat waves. Uh, but at the same time, deaths linked to cold have dropped by an even farther amount. And so the, t- the total net mortality. Uh, from temperature has decreased over the last 20 years. And that's simply because uh, cold kills a lot more people than heat. So for every one death linked to heat, there are nine linked to cold. Is anyone actually embracing this idea? So some people have pointed to this study, which was published in uh, Lancet Planetary Health, peer review study. And they've said, well, you know, because deaths linked to temperature have declined as the planet has warmed. That just means that, you know, global warming is great, nothing to worry about. Uh, But unfortunately, just because something has happened in the past doesn't mean that the trend will continue into the future. Now, a new study just came out last year, um, this one published in Harvard's Quarterly Journal of Economics, also peer-reviewed, that tried to project into the future 
how, as global warming continued, uh, the effect of temperature on mortality might change. And what they found is that, on the whole, across the globe, there wouldn't be much of a net change, but uh, there's enormous geographic variation. And, you know, I think it's important to remember that, you know, just because there's a a decline in global uh, mortality linked to cold, like, that doesn't help a construction worker in Phoenix who's working during a heat wave. So it's hard to do this kind of math with human lives. But at the same time, in many places in the world, uh, hotter, poorer places, particularly in Africa, mortality should increase as temperatures continue to rise. We're talking with Harry Stevens from the Washington Post. And, Harry, I was actually just going to ask you about that because I was thinking about my time in Palm Springs where 125 degrees in August is not yeah. out of the realm of possibilities. Uh, tell me a little more about the concern as hotter places get hotter. One thing that is remarkable about human beings compared to the millions of other species on planet Earth is that we're quite good at adapting to temperature. You know, there's millions of species on planet Earth, and we're the only ones that can turn on an air conditioner. We live in Palm Springs. We live at the equator. We live in Greenland. We live in Alaska. Um, that being said, there are very high temperatures at which the human body really does begin to struggle, and 125 is, is really difficult. And we've already seen uh, heat waves, not just in the United States, but across the world, where you had large mortality events. And um, so it's going to be important for places to uh, try to learn to adapt to that. Um, some places in America, some cities have, like, chief heat officers. I mean, these are the sorts of things that cities are going to have to start thinking about in order to prepare for additional heat waves. And then the other thing is just, you know, buying air conditioners. I mean, people used to not have air conditioners in Seattle, but they're buying them now. I bought one myself, so I totally understand. That's Harry Stevens. You can read much more on this online at WashingtonPost.com. Harry, thank you. Coming up, a Toyota SUV driving around town with no apparent operator will explain. And the gray squirrel gets much attention here in our state. And let me get to the city of Tacoma rolling out a program for residents to turn food into feed. Here's Marina Rockinger. If you have a food waste bin in your kitchen, you know it can get stinky. Chances are you have to take it out and dump it in a bigger bin, then set it on your curb for pickup. Or maybe you don't bother and just toss all the scraps into the garbage. To help eliminate hassle and cut down on what goes to the landfill, the city of Tacoma is teaming up with Mill Industries to offer a food waste bin that takes the leftovers, dries, shrinks, deodorizes, and grinds them down into what will become chicken feed. Alyssa Pollock is with Mill. So the Mill bin can go into your kitchen and take away all the ick factor and all the inconvenience of separating your food scraps. So I think it's really helpful even in counties where or cities where there is existing organic recycling infrastructure. She says every few weeks, the food grounds are picked up by USPS and sent to Mill Industries. Pollock says at $33 per month, it potentially saves customers on their overall garbage bill. The program is set to start in March. Marina Rockinger, Northwest News Radio. Northwest News this week for the week of February 18th continues. I'm Mark Christopher. It's good to have you with us. The State Fish and Wildlife Department says the western gray squirrel is in danger of extinction here. In Washington state, officials recommending its status to be changed from threatened to endangered. These aren't the squirrels most of us see running along the fence line or scurrying up the trees. The western gray squirrel is primarily found in three parts of the state. The northern Cascade region, the Klickitat region around the Columbia River, and an area called the southern Puget Trough, essentially parts of Pierce and Thurston counties. They like big trees like conifers and ponderosa pine. But state fish and wildlife officials say there are only a few thousand gray squirrels left in the state. Habitat loss, wildfires, highway mortality, 
mortality and disease threaten their survival. The species play an important role. The Olympian says about 50% of the great mammal's diet consists of truffles, not the chocolate kind, the underground fungus kind. And when the squirrel eats and then defecates the mushroom, it spreads those spores and fungi, helping trees to grow larger. Sending your pup in for surgery can be stressful. Then add the potential for excessive bleeding afterward. Maria Rockinger of Northwest News says there's now genetic testing to find out if your dog could be in post-op danger. Genetic researchers at Washington State University have been working to figure out what dog breeds are more likely to have excessive bleeding after undergoing surgery. Michael Court with WSU College of Veterinary Medicine tells me they have come up with a test that looks for a specific mutation. Those breeds that are very, where we find a lot of uh, the mutation in, such as greyhounds, uh, Irish wolfhounds, um, some of the other um, uh, breeds like that, definitely they need to be tested. He tells me they also discovered the mutation in a more common breed. Golden Retrievers, which um, I own a Golden Retriever, so I was very surprised about that. Court says once it's determined your pup has the mutation, it allows the veterinary surgeon to head off any potential post-op bleeding with specific drugs. Right now, the genetic test is available through WSU for $65, but Court tells me they're working to get the test made available on other common health panels available at your vet. Marina Rockinger, Northwest News Radio. Thanks, Marina. Thurston County is discontinuing its plastic foam recycling program. Why? Let's find out. The county has announced its Waste and Recovery Center in Lacey will close at the end of the month due to a recent law prohibiting certain types of plastic foam products. In a news release, the county says it remains committed to continuing plastic foam recycling and is actively exploring new options. Until a new vendor is found, the county says styrofoam and other plastic foam products should be put into the regular garbage. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. And at least have one more story here, and that is if you have Happen to see this Toyota SUV tooling around Seattle with no apparent operator. It may be a driverless car made by an Amazon-owned company. Corwin Hake looked into this. Earlier this week, for the first time ever, the Amazon-owned robotic car maker Zooks tested its autonomous Toyota Highlander hybrid SUVs on a public street near the company's headquarters in Foster City, California. Next, the company says it plans to test the SUV on public streets in Seattle. And for these tests, at least, Zook says in a company video, there will be human operators on board. The safety driver is essentially responsible for maintaining situational awareness and disengaging the system from autonomy if necessary. Ultimately, the vehicles are intended to operate independently of human control. No word yet on exactly when or where the Seattle tests will take place. But Zooks tells Bloomberg News, Seattle weather is a big reason to test here to see how inclement weather impacts the sensors. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Brings to mind there's no better way to learn about the future, what's coming, and a way to recap of something you might have missed. That's the power of this program of Northwest News this week. It's heard every week at this time here on Northwest News Radio, AM 1000, FM 97.7. Also as a podcast at nwnewsradio.com. You'll find other favorites like Politicast with Jeff Poldula, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with our own Bill Swartz. If you enjoy this program as a podcast, we hope you'll share a rating and review at Apple Podcast. Northwest News This Week, produced by Bill O'Neill, editor and tech advisor, Painter Webb. Hi, Mark Christopher. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time.